There is no democracy. There is only IBM and ITT and AT&T and DuPont, Dow, Union Carbide and Exxon. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Ribbon of Memes where Roger Bellwest and Nick Marsh are mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore though we may be unspecifically mad at different things <laughs> than, than, <laughs> than the film we are talking about today which um, was produced um, much the same year that I was which is 1976 um, and mm-hmm. it is Sidney Lumet's uh, multi-Oscar winning network yeah, I don't know why I specified that. Records in there as well. we'll, we'll it's come back to those did. later. I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. This is um, oh again uh, for those of you who haven't listened before. Listen before then go back to episode one probably. But uh, well, no, we're talking about film. We're talking about film. There, there are going to be um, spoilers. There will be spoilers. Um, the first of which we'll start right now is I'll start with our traditional brief summary mm-hmm. of network. Um, Howard Beale. A, uh, an anchor in the Walter Cronkite form uh, loses both his wife and uh, his job over the course of uh, a couple of years and has a breakdown on air, first of all threatening to blow his own brains out um, and then um, becoming kind of a crazed messianic figure. The network in charge, which is a failing network, um, realises uh, that this is the best viewing figures they've had for quite some time. There are corporate shenanigans behind the scenes. Howard Beale is kept on air despite an increasingly fragile mental state. Um, uh until the point where his crazed uh, premonitions become uh, the mouthpiece for the corporation in charge of the network and a mouthpiece for uh, global economics, which I'm sure we'll come on to later, whereupon um, Howard is uh, murdered on air um, and is the first man, as we are uh, delightfully <laughs> informed by the voiceover, the first man ever to die due to poor ratings. Um that is Network in a very short nutshell. Yeah, it was a not, lot less... Not, I would point out, the first person to die on television, um, probably an influence on, on Paddy Chayefsky when this was being written, uh, was the suicide of Christine Chubbuck on the 15th of July 1974, uh, no, live she was a, she on WXLT-TV a... in Sarasota, Florida. Yes, I read this. Um, I... Oh, I thought about Googling it to see if there was any existing video, then strongly decided uh, the, against it. As I understand it, the video does exist. It is being get, kept by lawyers. There are no plans to release it. Thank goodness for that. Well, um, quite. Some things cannot be unseen. Um, uh, yes, so the, she was a journalist who uh, literally did blow her brains out on air. Um, and this film, this film, um, I had an idea. I'm going to, first of all, talk about my reactions to network because it was a slightly interesting journey and then we can dig into it a bit more Mm -hmm. i had seen network before some years ago enough years ago that i could remember absolutely nothing except i'm mad as hell and i'm not going to take it anymore well that's the thing in insofar as this has got into popular culture that is the thing that people remember yeah here, here is this guy on television saying that and everybody joins in and it's it's a memorable sequence I, don't, I, th- I think none of the people involved would say it is the point of the film, though. Well, um, well, I, I, in a way, this is a film with too many points, but I'll, <laughs> I'll come on to that. Um, I, I, so I watched it again this time, somewhat trepidatiously. I vaguely remember it sort of dragging and not being engaged. This time, I enjoyed it, and I, I don't know about grips, but I was certainly. Um, uh, I don't know, mildly squeezed around the upper thigh <laughs> for the for the duration of the film. I didn't remember the ending. That came as a surprise to me. Um, and I enjoyed it. And then afterwards, this film left a pretty weird, sour aftertaste. And it was partially 
partially the feeling that I had just been had both my political views simplified and broadly insulted <laughs> for two for two hours. Secondly, it's it was a bit like watching a colleague. Uh, or at least an acquaintance in a pub loudly espouse their own political views, which I may broadly agree with, um, and push them farther and farther to the point where they lost the crowd and me and made me feel very uncomfortable. See uh, also and, and Richard that it, Dawkins. And that, that is why should we, we should execute everybody immediately. For their own good, you understand. I, well, yeah, it, it, it was a, I felt extremely, well, not extremely, vaguely, down and uncomfortable uh, and wondering why I enjoyed the film and then wondering why I felt weird about it afterwards. Um, the, the Pauline that, Kale came to my rescue, but we yeah, will talk about that later. We'll certainly come back there, yeah. Uh, the the thing that particularly struck me was the, the parallel was something that I assume a lot of people notice, um, but it doesn't, doesn't seem to get talked about much. Uh, I think many of us may have known that guy who's always very amusing and always has something catty to say about people who aren't there. Right, guy yes. being gender neutral in this case, uh, right, yes, and one suddenly realizes, hang on a minute, I have no reason to assume they aren't being just as catty about me when I'm not there. <laughs> That's a really good way of putting it. Um, I mean, you talked I, I, about. I, I feel what what a, a lot of what's going on here is people are stupid, but you, dear viewer, you are in on the on the joke. You 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 get it. Yeah, with an undercurrent of him saying exactly the same to someone else, meaning that I'm stupid uh, five mm-hmm. minutes later. That's yeah. a really good. That's a really good analysis. Uh, this is a film you talked about. Um, Mad as hell, not being the point of it all. Um, this is a film, and, and I've touched upon that a few times. This is a film that punches out at a lot of targets, and most obviously television and consumerism, but it has pokes at globalism. Um, it has pokes at the uh, marriage at affairs. At women, I am still trying to decide whether this is a misogynistic film or not. Well, <laughs> um, I... I, I feel that one of the problems here is that there is basically only one female character who gets more than trivial screen time. Yeah. And just just as, you know, if, if you have the, the superhero team with one character who's defined as the woman, it's very easy to, to let that become the proxy for everything you think about women. Well, the other woman, I mean, which... We're talking about Faye Dunaway's um, ice queen. I think she might even be described in the film as an ice queen, but certainly stereotypical ice queen, um, heartless TV executive. Um, the other who, who won an Oscar for this film. Um, the other one of the other Oscars for this film was Beatrice. Um, I can't even read my own writing Straight. here. Beatrice, Beatrice Straight. Thank you. Won Best Supporting Actress for a tiny. Role five, as five minutes and two wife. seconds. That that is the shortest be- uh, shortest acting performance to win an Oscar. Goodness me, <laughs> goodness me. Um, so, what was your gut feeling about the film, Roger? Well, I, I'll talk about. I'd like to talk about Sidney Lumet a bit and the author, who I feel is uh, Paddy Chafayeski, who I feel is mm, uh, more. I'm going to say to blame for the film. <laughs> there, there are lots of bits I want to dig into, but yeah. In terms, you know, regardless of whether I agree with what it's trying to do, how well does it do what it's trying to do? And it is a well-made film. It is a well-written script. Mm. Uh, I, I will disagree with bits of them. They, but they do hold the attention. They don't drag. Yeah. They're not obviously inconsistent. That sort of thing. I mean, th- this may be a low bar, but a lot of films don't make it. So. Yes, that's a very good point. I did get to feel somewhere around the third or fourth speech that maybe this is somebody who's read, you know, Ayn Rand or one of those authors where, where the hero gets to justify themselves mm-hmm. uh, in, in a great big monologue. Um, it, it feels very self-satisfied, you know. Mm-hmm. I know this is wrong. I, I've got the answers, but, you know, the, answers mm-hmm. is, the answer is no television. Uh, For I, that part, yeah. I had I, I I looked a bit in, into this. Um, Paddy Jaiewski had actually done plenty of television. Oh, he was a very experienced writer up until about 1956. So you know, 20 years before this. Hmm. And maybe it's just me. Maybe I get a, a, a certain feeling of well, you know, now of course you're doing it all wrong. But back in my day, <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Uh, 
he had uh, he spent a lot of time. I, I feel it's appropriate to talk about Paddy. Sometimes we don't talk about the author of these so much. Um, the director of this film was Sidney Lumet, who mm-hmm. was incredibly prolific. I talked um, in the Man Who Would Be King about directors who passed my sort of vague bar of three films that I love or at least <laughs> like a lot, uh, reach my hall of fame. Sidney Lumet certainly done that. Um, uh, we have Dog Day Afternoon. It's a very good film. Mm-hmm. Twelve Angry Men, which is his first film, uh, and one of my favourites. It's hard not to like Henry Fonda. It may be a liberal fantasy, but gosh darn it, it's a wonderful liberal <laughs> fantasy. Um, Failsafe, which I, for a long time, preferred over Doctor Strangelove. I think mm-hmm. I've come round to liking Doctor Strangelove more now. Serpico, um, quite a few others that I like. So certainly Sidney Lumet has, has got... Um, the Orient Express. I mean, it's a different sort of thing. But well, it needed it, a good director to make it work. And it got a good director to make it work. It is. He's, he's, and I think that his direction shows in the fact that this movie carried me along and I enjoyed it a lot. And I, I really do like Sidney Lumet. Um, but the, the I feel feeling it's... I got sometimes was that there was this great thing, watch, watch of script with message mm. in it. Which Lumet then had to glue back together. I don't think it actually worked that way, but that was the feeling that that uh, came over me at times. You know. Well, I think maybe we discussed this um, off off air. Um, Paddy Chafeski. I, I think it's more appropriate to talk about him because it really does feel like him shouting at you for a lot of the mm-hmm. film or caricatures. But of... you know, he can at least write. So... He can write. Oh, yeah. I mean, that globalism speech is brilliant. Um, the mad as hell speech. Yeah, but one of the best ones for me is is actually um, not not one of the on air ones. Um, where Howard is saying, you know, I, I'm I'm not uh, going mad. I'm not having a religious feeling. And then proceeds to describe exactly what is a religious feeling. Yes, yes, it, it's I just like not that. a religious feeling that happens in the church. Yes, and it's not, it's it's I, it was written well enough that you can sort of imagine yourself in the room with a with a cold feeling creeping up your spine as your mm-hmm. your friend and colleague um, uh, earnestly explains why he wasn't going bonkers to you. <laughs> um, but I would like to talk about the characters. A yeah, bit. yeah. Like, to me, uh, one of my problems with the characters. I, I mean, this is a very intelligent script, um, and it's very well written. The characters, to me, are about as well dimensioned as most of my role playing characters. I would say they are not. Howard Beale, you know nothing about him really. He, he's just a bonkers man. He, mm-hmm. He's just he, he go, he's there to be uh, to watch him collapse. But there's no there's no understanding of how or why that even happens. Yes, he's had a bad time. But I, I feel he's not a well-drawn character. I feel he's a well-written character. Mm. But I, I'm starting to realise that's not necessarily the same thing. <laughs> yeah, um, and I've got to say, we, we, we've seen several Faye Dunaway films in the course of mm. this. I think this is possibly the best performance I have seen from her. I'm very, very yes. impressed with it. But her character is functionally a zombie. <laughs> <laughs> that, I was, I was. I'm glad you put it. Like, to me, I thought her acting was phenomenal, and I thought there was no one. Right at the end, you know, they decide. Right, we're going to have to kill him then. Um, now that is a hard thing to bring up in a, even in a satire. Um, and I have my own opinions on the word satire, I suppose. <laughs> but um, that is a hard thing to bring up and sell it. And I think if Randy Duval had been the one to push it, his character, it wouldn't have worked. But Faye Dunaway, she just sells it. And I feel she yeah. sells it with her with her acting, not with the script. She just, you like, okay, yeah, mm. this, yeah. I, I completely agree. However, the character that she plays is a complete one-note, yeah, exactly, functionally yeah, a zombie. Yeah, and because she is the, on, the only uh, female character with more than five minutes and two seconds of screen time, mm. I, yeah... Is Chayefsky saying, well, you know, if only she could love, she wouldn't need a career? There were certainly people saying that and not, yeah. not being laughed at in the 70s. I mean, they're saying it now. Just, we're just laughing at them more. Um, is is that the message he's actually going for? I don't know. He, he, perhaps he's trying to be ambiguous. Perhaps he just didn't think of the implications. Mm. It doesn't feel like a film that is trying to be ambiguous. But yeah. I I agree that I didn't quite get what he was getting at really there other than tv execs are soulless slime bags really and uh, i suppose that could have been a, a a man just as well except then you couldn't have tied in this uh, i i would say ill-advised marriage subplot 
And that, I, I think that's, to me, where the film started to unravel. Um, the, it, it, it's a bit William wish fulfillment, isn't it? You know, he gets uh, to screw a much younger woman, but there are no consequences, and he can go back exactly. to his wife after. Consequence-free, <laughs> screwing Faye Dunaway. Um, I, I mean, I like William. I love William Holden, um, but oh, the bit where he's preaching to her about oh, I just, none, none of that rang true. Having been through similar experiences, um, and, well, w- with the character I've presented. It is true, but that's because the character as presented is, as I say, a zombie. Well, you know, I, you we, know we, from... we, we get that in the lovemaking scene where she's constantly talking television. That that was a nice actually. That I did very much enjoy that scene where she doesn't. She even talks rating through an orgasm, which is impressive. <laughs> impressive bit of acting. Um, uh, I what I disliked about the marriage subplot was she is kind of turned into the villain mm. of the piece. Um, she is the uh she's the one who's done it all wrong and William Holden is it, it kind of takes the moral high ground somehow and i i found that difficult to take this um, is a very successful and well respected film so if you go saying things like this is the author's wish fulfillment fantasy figure people will laugh at you so i i'd better not say that it, it did feel <laughs> a bit that way at times uh, yes i agree I, I, that, so um and that i suppose that brings me on to william holden's character you know who's, who's i suppose I suppose he's the emotional core of the film. Is that the idea? Also, in, insofar as there is an identification figure at all, he's it. I mean, he's the closest we yes. get to a normal person. Yes. And he's beautifully acted, because mm. it's William Holden. Uh, I just, the character is... Oh, he's just a standard old white guy. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't really know that, that what was the to make that, of him. That really struck me watching it, you know, obviously, with... Some of these people have died and some of them have had careers and other things. Um, but, but in most of the corporate scenes, what, what I see is a sea of indistinguishable old white men and Robert Duvall, who, <laughs> who just looks like Robert Duvall, whatever he's doing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well then again, there's another Robert Duvall's, um, uh, uh, corporate shill, I suppose, whatever you call it. He's not the president of the, the corp. He's the, um, uh, he's the, the corporate spokesman for this much larger company, but effectively becomes a president or uh, functionally. Um, he's pretty well known, isn't he? I mean, I know nothing mm-hmm. about the man other than he espouses the corporate philosophy um, and shouts a lot. Well, uh, some of the point, on, um, that's one of the things Diana says when, when she's claiming she's not having an affair with him, is the, the only thing he cares about is getting onto the board. Yes, and she does not mean the only thing he cares about in the office. It's the only thing he cares about full stop. Exactly, yeah. So he's, um, and I suppose you could take that as a, yeah, a, a, a driven fanatical character, but I, it just felt to me as, a, oh, here's another poorly drawn character. Yeah, it's but again, he's being cast. acted by Robert Duvall, so that, that makes up for a lot. Well, I feel <laughs> this is a film that is hugely lifted by the actors. William Holden, Faye Dunaway, it's a great um, cast, Robert yeah. Duvall. Um, Peter Finch, you haven't talked about Peter Finch. His, mm-hmm. his performance, I, I feel he's kind of a forgotten actor. I love Peter Finch. Um, and this was, this very sadly was his second to last film and he got the Oscar for Howard Beale posthumously. I think. Yeah, first posthumous Oscar. I think the second one was Heath Ledger. Mm. Also, um, Australian. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, they, they, they got him in and, uh, I, I think he ended up paying his own way to the audition or something like that because they just weren't convinced that an Australian could sound like an American anchorman. Maybe, <laughs> maybe if you're an American native speaker, I don't, uh, th- th- then it becomes more obvious, but he, he convinced me. Well, he does have, um, I mean, he becomes this messianic character, but when he is at his, uh, you know, turned up to 11 craziness, he is mesmerizing to what? Mm-hmm. I, 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 I mean, I it, suppose it, it's a it, dream find, as an actor. I, I at least found it plausible. That this really would draw an audience, not just a, what's this crazy old guy going to do next? But yeah, the, you know, the charisma is there. We are prepared yes. to follow him. Yes, I agree. It's not, it, yes, it's, it's not simply, um, ho ho, let's see if he blows his brain. It's, uh, yeah, he, he does draw followers to him. Um, uh, I want to talk about the satire of television as, as well at it. some point. Um, but, uh, well, Oh, a lot of reviews of this film. This is a slight segue because we haven't talked about Nancy Beatty's character yet. Um, that's a, what a phenomenally cast film this is. Um, this is much more of an ensemble than the man who would be king. That's mm. for sure. Um, the, a lot of, um, 
reviews, like even now when it's talked about, it's talked about this prescient film that pre, you know, it predicted reality TV all those years ago. It knew exactly how TV was going to. To me, it doesn't. I mean, it, the, what we see presented to us as, as as the TV is not. I don't know. It's not what we have nowadays, hmm. and we wouldn't be given that kind of shit show nowadays. You might see. You'd see. It, it would be much more professionally produced. Exactly. It would be manipulated much more behind the scenes. It'd probably be scripted. I I feel. I I don't feel this was a prescient film. I mean, yes, elements TV... of it, as as in the network doesn't care what what society's standards are. The network is going to no, sorry, what society's official standards are is what I should say here. The network yes. is going to put on whatever gets people watching. I I don't think that was news in the seventies. Yeah. I mean, I, well, the, uh, in the early parts of the film, it, it it felt as if it were going to go in a slightly different direction. I mean, one of the things I've really appreciated is during his initial rant when he's saying, I'm going to kill myself next week yeah. on air, um, nobody in the booth, is, which is where we see it from, nobody in there is listening. They they, they don't care what he's saying. He's just he's just the, the talent doing the talent thing. And some, agree, somebody, co- somebody comes along and says, hey, did you hear that? No? no? no. Why, should, why should I have heard that? Uh, yes, that's a lovely scene. I agree. And I, I think I could tie to that um, quite a few times, particularly in the early parts, of pe- people complaining about language. Um, and I think that happens because it, it's a proxy for I don't like this, that you can point out and say it's an easy measurable thing. You know, they said the bad word three times in this hour, and that is more than the one and a half times that is allowed. Right, yes, yeah. Yeah, like the fusses people make about, you know, how much, how much exposure of a breast is acceptable. And, you know, our children will be destroyed for life if they see more than 27% or whatever it is. I don't know. I see what you mean. You, you could draw a, you could draw a bar chart saying, look, these breasts have increased by 20% <laughs> over this time. <laughs> but, but, the... but, it, but it's a proxy. It, cause it's an, it's an easily arguable proxy for, yes. I just don't like this. I don't like the shift. What is the window called? You know, the, the, um. Overton window? That is exactly what I'm trying to think of. And it feels like the Overton window has shifted considerably since Network was filmed. Mm-hmm. So I was assuming I'd find this really mild, you know, and just think, oh, yeah, they're going to think this is shocking. I'm well used to it. I, I did, that wasn't my experience of Network. I, I found it mm, faintly unbelievable, you know, that they would actually use real footage of terrorists to introduce a terrorist show. I know it was a satire and, you know, exaggeration. Mm-hmm. Um I just didn't. I, I, I don't think even a desperate TV network would would. I'm sure they stooped to some pretty low lows, but it didn't really ring true to me, and it doesn't feel well, like. Well, apart from television else, is a typical now. terrorist group is not reliably going to produce one piece of footage per week. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, the implication, which I kind of liked in the film, was that, that if they weren't producing that footage, perhaps they could be encouraged to do so um, by uh, by the, the, robbing this bank. What, what I really liked is um, the last time we see most of them, where, in theory, it is a revolutionary meeting, but they are just arguing about their percentages the way everybody else does. Yeah, they, they have that. effectively been subverted and made part of the machine. Yeah, that was a really nice touch. Um, when uh, the I forget the leader of the communist uh, extremist party shoots in the roof and then says, "Right, enough of that." Um, everyone turned to page twenty-seven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there, there was a lot yeah, to in, like about incidentally, this. Incidentally, um, the the subverted heiress Marianne Gifford, played by Kathy Cronkite, daughter of Walter Cronkite. Goodness me. I also, I meant I'm going to do a sneaky go. I thought I spotted Lance Henriksen in a very early. I believe he's in there as, as a network lawyer or something of that sort. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, He is way, there we go. Well spotted. Very distinctive face, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, hmm. Though, uh, moving slightly from, from the terrorist thing, that one of the lines I, I want to trace from this, and one of our things is the influence that the film has had. Um, Particularly those, those company scenes at the end. So to, to expand slightly on, on, on your synopsis, we, we've got the situation where the big boss has, has Beale preaching the corporate gospel. Mm. The ratings are dropping. Therefore, the lower, lower level people, the ones who are actually part of the broadcasting network rather than the big corporate owners need to do something about it. And they, they, they land on, um, killing Beale. But, that I see as a really foundational for the corporate screwage line of cyberpunk. 
Um, most obvious example I can think of in film is Robocop. Uh, where, you know, you've, you've got all these high level shenanigans, which are entirely about do I, do I get the corner office or do you? Yes. Which have human consequences. Uh, yes. you know, the terrorists are just one more piece on the board. The company pays them to do its dirty work. That, yes. That's entirely a cyberpunk thing. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, uh, and, and it's point, not yes. something you would get in Gibson particularly. So. Oh, it's not getting to Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, so I, I think that's that's a, a, a strand that some somebody will will now write in. I mean, if if you can spot another source for this, do by all means. But really, I, I haven't seen anything like it this early. That's a good point. The, the in terms of, of you know, we, we have downstairs. absolutely no morals. We just want to do the ladder climbing thing. It's it's certainly nakedly expressed here. Um, I I don't. I perhaps not film or TV cognizant. I I don't feel that was a new idea. Mm. Uh, I you know Citizen Kane touches on things about this sort of thing. It doesn't have the lower level consequences, but the dehumanising effect of mm. corporatisation. Um, it may well have been a gradual thing, but certainly to me this felt very uh, connected. It was well, yeah. It was very raw and very blunt, and just uh, should we kill him then? <laughs> <laughs> um, which then you see very graphically. Um, yeah, that, that that's a good point. Um, I think that is true. That it's uh, that, and that I I like that kind of um, interaction. The high level, the pawns in the game reacting against it. I, the difference here in network is that the pawns have no agency and they are just complete mm. pawns. Whereas in cyberpunk uh, stories, at least they think they do <laughs> <laughs> and try to avoid, it and usually end up just doing the dirty work of another corporation. Um, so what, I mean, this is a film that espoused a lot of political, I'm saying this is a film, I don't know why I've gone all preachy about network, but it preached at me for two hours, so I'm going to let's do it back. What did you feel? I mean, we do have to go into our politics, I suppose, especially, but what, I mean, they, it had things to say, as I say, about globalism, about television, about terrorism, about the institution of marriage. Um, I felt it was hitting out at a lot of different targets, sometimes successfully, Sometimes less so, but every scene felt like it was hitting out on something. It feels less as though it has a coherent position to espouse than I don't like this and I don't like that and I don't like this other thing either. Mm. Um, now, th- think, thinking of Beale's popularity, the whole mad as hell thing, the frustration is, is, is obviously real. It's out there, it can easily be tapped into. But the frustration is there, basically not, not as a naturally arising thing but because people have been told life should be clean and simple and you des- you deserve a clean simple easy life until right. suddenly the oil price goes up <laughs> it as w- was obviously still on people's minds here um yeah do- so this does, the, a- does the network have have a duty to give up ratings in in term and uh, give up giving the public what it wants well this is why I don't think commercial television is, is the way television should happen. But hey, I live in the UK, and even the BBC chases ratings. So, even well, sadly enough, they become when they're accountable to a government who will point at commercial success, then they um mm-hmm. they end up chasing ratings too. But no, sorry, that's uh, some more policy. Um, Paddy Chafayeski uh, said of that mad as hell speech, it, it kind of wrote itself. It was very easy to write, and it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has been taught. Where did I read it? That this is a this is supposed to be one of his central beliefs um and i found that slightly horrifying because it's it's not a belief it's a mad angry howl at the state yeah, of it, affairs it, it's get the mob going and then they get directed to do yeah. something trivial like sending telegrams to the white house you know Ex- yeah yeah <laughs> uh it was um so i uh, i don't know quite how i felt about that other than i felt this film desperately uh, was trying to make me feel a certain I've talked about this before with um, Badlands when a film is I don't mind a film being opinionated or telling me what I should think but if I don't quite think the same way and the film constantly keeps telling me this is the way I should think <laughs> there becomes a sort of cognitive dissonance there which makes me uncomfortable and I think led to my sour taste after this film and yeah, I, 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 am... I think there's, there's some um, argument I've, I've seen over w- whether Howard is actually insane or supposed to be genuinely receiving visions. But I think the, it, the point for me is that it doesn't matter. 
if yeah. he's predictable, he's useful. If he's controllable, he's useful. When he stops being useful, you've got to get rid of him. Well, the controllable bit is that, that uh, that's another very memorable scene, which I somehow completely forgot about. Ned Beatty's um, mm. quite dramatic scene when he just... Well, um, dr- dramatic and in great surroundings, but at, as a human being, deliberately, he's not looking like a particularly impressive guy. He's he's not got the, you know, chiseled jaw of, of, of Duval. He's just this guy. Yeah. Well, he uses the surroundings to great effect there. It's true. But it is a great, it's one of cinema's great, um, I don't know, surprises because, you know, you see very little of him and he seems to be a fairly genial chap who says he's an excel. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly he just almost literally puts the fear of God into Howard Beale. Um, mm-hmm. I, but I suppose in ha- some having ways the same conversation that Beals had with his imaginary voices earlier. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't know if he was privy to that, or this is just uh, what happens to messianic people as they always have the same sort of conversation, <laughs> just with different content. Um, I don't know how much um, it, it rang true to me on a human level. I understand it happened to ha- had to happen dramatically, hmm. but this is where I start to have thoughts about, you know, who is. Howard Beale and why is he doing this and what sort of mental state is he in is he that suggestible um, because he doesn't appear to be suggestible, he appears to be very strong willed when he's doing his his, uh, his charismatic harangues of the public mm. and then he suddenly uh, utterly changes his philosophy uh, uh, by one very stern bollocking <laughs> from the network boss. Yeah, the, the, um, this suggests to me that that he is basically saying what, what whatever uh, gets placed in his head, whether that's by his visions or by somebody acting like his visions. Well, we certainly know some charismatic people who have influence over the world that that, that may be true of in recent years. Um, it, it didn't ring true um, to me because he seemed to be a man of very strong convictions and not especially mercurial. Um, yeah, I, th- I think you have to assume that, that he's had some sort of major, um, uh, let, let, let us say, cognition-impairing event. Yes, he may at, well at have so, had. At some point, uh, between the, certainly between the, the first rant and the third, whether it's before or after the second one, might, one might be able to argue. But, yes. Uh, well, and certainly, you know, not all mental health comes with um, indecision and uh, not all mental health issues um, come with that. I just, I felt like, um, I don't know, it didn't ring true to me is the best I can say. He, did, he didn't mm. seem like the sort of man who would then completely change his philosophy on that basis. But it had to happen for the film. And at that point, I felt that the plot of the film was becoming... All, all monolithic. I mean, it, it did grip me, you know, the award ceremony um, mm-hmm. where... Um, Randy Duval's character finds out that he's he's buggered. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, that's really nicely played, amazingly played by. I mean, the acting was superb, and yeah. I, I really given uh, given that I would say slender characterization of everyone involved. Aside from that moment with Howard Beale and Ned Beatty, I felt otherwise. I I felt I understood the characters' motivations, and they acted in a way that I felt their characters should. Um, uh, I yeah, they, really they, get... there's uh, partly because they're fairly simple characters, perhaps, but there's no point where yes. you can say, "Hey, hang on, they wouldn't. That person wouldn't do that in that situation." Well, I suppose the other area where it didn't quite ring true to me is during um, uh, Beatrice Strait's uh, Oscar-winning five-minute speech uh, about the collapse of It feels as if she's playing, playing it just as much as everybody yeah. is playing it. Well, it, the, the, actually, this that brings me on to another point, but I. I I agree. It just, it, she just, I don't know if that was Oscar worthy. It was very nicely done, but I just didn't feel, weirdly, everyone else in the film is angry and shouting. She starts off angry and shouting, and then it just becomes a fairly civilized chat about, um, how <laughs> sad her husband's going to be in the end after going and knocking off this 20 something year old. I just, well, um, the other thing that felt quite strongly to me, and this may be Sydney Lumet, um, who did a lot of um, direction of plays, or at least adapted plays. Mm. This wasn't an adapted play, but goodness, it felt like it uh, in a number of places. Well, the, there's a thing which I, I didn't notice on first viewing, but I, I had a look at other people's um, comments on it afterwards, and I, and I, I spotted it on, on, on rewatch. Um, 
you've got a gradual shift over the course of the film from a basically naturalistic filming style to a much more formalised, this is what's in the frame, TV, and perhaps televisual style. Yes. Which is Lumet and uh, Owen Roisman, director of photography. Um, which, I don't know. I mean, it was, it was, it was subtle enough that it escaped me the first time, so, so it's perhaps not necessary, but, um, I, I think it's an interesting thing to do. There were, there were scenes to me that felt jarringly stagey. One of them being when William Holden's character left his wife. That mm. just felt to me like, it just felt, it should be, it, it should be on stage that it was very, um, oh, well, you, you uh, could argue that Christensen is, is, um, doing, treating the whole thing as, as a, you know, TV miniseries. Well. And so that ought to as well. But on the other hand, she's, uh, the, the, you know, the wife is the one person who isn't. So. Yeah, that metaphor got a bit tied to me as well. That was pretty ironed out. This, oh, we're, we're acting out of play. This is our third act. This is the happy ending. The, 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 they all talk about it. Well, or, um, uh, Faye Dunaway and William Holden talk about it. But she, yeah, I agree that she, his wife, um, uh, Beatrice Strait is, is not part of that metaphor and shouldn't sort of sink into it so easily. Mm. I got really tired of them, uh, rolling out that metaphor <laughs> towards the end of that. It was a great performance. Subplot. Again. But yeah. not the right performance for that time and that place. Not uh, perhaps personal experience is seeping in here, but I just it didn't <laughs> ring true to me. Um, in the kind of heightened emotional state, I would have thought they would have been at that point. So mm. that felt very stagey. The Ned Beatty speech again felt quite stagey to me too. Um, yeah, it's a good uh, speech, but yes. It's, uh, here is the, sp- here is an important speech where I, the author, I'm going to impart some truths about the world upon you. Well, yeah, but, but, but we get that. We get the speeches from Beale. We get speeches from Schumacher and his wife. We get speeches from Christensen. I mean. <laughs> There's a lot of speech. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I would say 90% of them are exactly what I said. I, the author, am now going to impart some knowledge upon you, <laughs> the viewer, except the Randy Devell ones, which are clearly there just to make him seem like an absolute Arsehole, <laughs> as far as I can tell. I, I'm, I don't know, I seem to be more down on this film than you, Roger. Um, is that um, fair to say? I don't know. I mean, I, I think what I'm trying to do is, is split it into bits. And mm. I'm very impressed with the direction. I'm very impressed with mm-hmm. the photography. I'm very impressed with the acting. I feel that these are overcoming the script more than they are, you know, bringing it to its acme. Mm. I, I I think if if you if you made that script, what would you say straight? You know, with just sort of normal actors and and averagely competent cameramen and so on, it would be a very dull film. Yes, so, I mean you could say that about a lot of films, to be fair. But I agree with you. They they are working. I don't know about despite the script, but they are adding things to it that the scripts. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, one thing I did find. Um, Pauline Kael, the, the great Pauline Kael, in her original mm. review of this, uh, pointed out that Chayefsky had basically had a really quite similar female character before, uh, in 1958's The Goddess, which is, yeah, she's basically Marilyn Monroe Exby. Um, right. She, she's, she's unable to love and she's seeking stardom and she's still basically unable to love. But of course then it wasn't the fault of television. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was 1958. Uh- uh, so, so, yeah, you know, because he was writing for TV. Uh, there's I, a certain po- amount of the kids these days, maybe, you know, blame, blame the depression, TV, rock music, role-playing games, the internet. <laughs> <laughs> um, Pauline Kale does describe um, Faye Dunaway's characters. Not a woman with a drive to power. She's just a dirty Mary, Mary Tyler Moore, <laughs> which, I, which I quite like. I wouldn't say I'd complain about that. <laughs> <laughs> There is an element of punching down, perhaps, that leaves me uncomfortable. This is film talking about its younger brother, TV, and yeah, being particularly and I, nasty I think about it. At this era, it was still, you know, TV was, for, uh, for many people, a place you worked while you were trying to get into film. Yes. Well, that's only changed, what, I don't know, the last five, ten years, something like that. It's very recent. Yeah. If, it's, if it has completely well, changed. Well, bas- yeah. basically, once long form storytelling started in TV again. Ah. Blake Seven, you mean? I was thinking specifically of Buffy and Babylon 5. And, and Babylon both, 5, both, well, both of those being reasonably successful and then... Speaking of influences, yeah. one of J. Michael Straczynski's uh, uh, greatest influences on Babylon 5 was Blake 7. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know about Buffy, but I don't know if we're allowed to talk about Joss Whedon anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yes, uh, I, I, uh, I, yeah, I, did, I, I didn't love it. I liked it perhaps more than I was expecting to, given that I had my expectations wrenched. <laughs> because I, I was starting off thinking, yeah, this is going to be a sat- satire on TV, and then really it wasn't anymore by the end. No, I'm not sure quite where it was going by the end. Maybe that's too extreme. I, d- I don't know. I felt my summary would be, to some extent, I don't feel it was true enough or realistic enough to the characters to just be... Well, let's go back to Badlands, which I seem to keep going back to, actually. I felt <laughs> Terence Malick had a very neutral directorial tone, and he was just like, here's some shit that happens. Let's see. What do you think about that? But they, the characters were so real and strong that uh you accepted that that's the thing that happened. You didn't understand why they were behaving why they were, but you believed mm. that they were. Um And... That's a different thing. It, was, it wasn't like, I don't understand why the writers made this. I just, these characters are, are strange and unusual. Um, in Network, the characters were not strong enough to sustain that for me. So uh, it didn't really, it couldn't really be just a, this is some stuff that happened. It was clearly trying to make a point. It was clearly had targets. Mm. And I'm not sure for me that it landed the myriad of points that it was trying to make. I mean, some of the targets it hit, some of them were very easy targets. Quite a few of them it missed quite dramatically for me. And I think ultimately, for a film with a point, or many points... Too many points, uh, perhaps. Too many points. Uh, it missed too many of them for me to be ultimately long-term satisfying. Though it, I absolutely agree with you, I enjoyed it as a film. It reminds me a little of what people said about Airplane when that came out, you know, Many of the jokes fall flat, but that doesn't matter because 15 seconds later there will be another joke. <laughs> that is the first time anyone's ever compared Network to Airplane, I suspect. <laughs> um, but, um, but, you know, many of these points don't work, but if, but if an individual viewer finds a point that they particularly like and can glum onto, then job done. I bet maybe the difference is a bad joke doesn't bother me so much in airplane, but a, a point badly made that I disagree with <laughs> then, make, then makes me grumpy for oh, the rest. The, the of point the badly film. made that one does agree with is worse. <laughs> oh, that's even worse. That's a very good point. So um, well, yeah, I mean, yes. again, I'm glad to have watched it. I probably wouldn't have watched it if we hadn't been doing it for this. Um, if I'd just picked it at random, I probably wouldn't be terribly impressed. But there, there were definitely good bits to it, and. Uh, mm. It invites analysis, which I, I suspect Chayefsky uh, would take as a compliment. It does, and it's, <laughs> yes, I feel like we've had a, a fair amount to talk about, um, rather than me just gushing as I have done for the last <laughs> the two podcasts. Um, I've enjoyed um, talking about a, a film that I didn't enjoy so much, uh, and it's certainly a lot of talking points. Was it a masterpiece? It certainly hailed us so. Um, well. I, th- I suspect one of the reasons it did so well at the Oscars is it is, it is basically saying to film people, you are good people, you're not like those TV people. <laughs> yes, I agree. <laughs> Punching down, that was one of my problems. Um, as I say, the, the main influence I draw from that is is the cyberpunk, um, mm. the boardroom that's, thing. That's good. That's a, an interest. That's not an angle I'd thought of. Um, I mean, the maddest hell scene has been aped in a number of things that I've seen, and uh, I suspect it's known by at least three times more people than have watched the film. <laughs> yeah. um, though the film was very popular at the time. This was not a uh, loved by the critics, snubbed by the audiences. It, mm. it did very well, I believe. Yeah. Um, uh, I, is it a masterpiece? Oh, not for me, I'm afraid. Uh, I don't want to be a two thumbs up, two thumbs down. I, I enjoyed it. I I. For the reasons I've mentioned, I, I don't think it has a lot to say about the human condition. I feel like I learned more about humans from Jaws and the man who would be king than I did from this. <laughs> That's, that may be me. Well, the, the main character who gets analysed most is, isn't really human, is she? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, was did it have? Was it influential? Um, as you say, cyberpunk. That, that, yes, that's really the main outflow that that I trace. I mean, there have been other films about TV journalism in general. Uh, well, this is not far off, um, well, no, TV journalism. I'm trying to think of other TV. I was about to say All the President's Men, but clearly that's not uh, good. I, I think there have been better analyses of TV journalism. They're not as free. Oh, as I, I, I don't mean as right analysis. Now. I mean, I mean any, anybody who's made a film about 
TV journalism since yeah. this yes. has had this as an influence. Yes, that is a good point. It was certainly influential. Um, uh, apart from anything else, it was just simply very widely seen, so, you know. Yes. That's um, that's a good point on on the on the tick. Uh, I'm just trying tick. to think think of other other films along those lines. I mean, you know, I feel like I should now. You see, yeah, crusading reporter is a much more common archetype, and that's usually newspapers because certain, certainly at this point, and for, for for some years afterwards, until people finally noticed, it was thought or you know, the the newspaper was thought of as the thoughtful journalism as opposed to the TV sensation stuff. So, yes. The the only film that I can think of about a TV network since then is UHF with Weird Al Yankovic, which <laughs> may not be quite the influence I was looking for. Um, I'm sure there have been many serious um, Hollywood films since. I'm sure there are. I just can't think of many that, uh, that spring to mind. Um, but that is a, a memory failure, I suspect. What were let's uh, what were the top ten films of 1976? Uh, well, this wasn't one of them. Really. Uh, should, should we do a, revert, a, a countdown thing? Oh, go on then. Always, it will add a bit of free sound of excitement <laughs> to the podcast. For, for those who, who haven't looked at Wikipedia. Uh, so, uh, number 10, Midway, uh, released in the UK as uh, Battle of Midway. So, yeah. fairly, fairly straight, uh, war film. Uh, number nine, In Search of Noah's Ark. Right. Yeah. I've heard of Noah's Ark. Mm-hmm. Well, they, 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 they claimed they were searching for it and have found the real final resting place. Was this a documentary or was it like a proto of the Lost documentary. Okay, right. Uh, number me. eight, The Enforcer, so the third Dirty Harry. The third already in 1976? Mm-hmm. Blimey. Uh, so that's what people are working against. Uh, so, yeah, um, number seven, The Bad News Bears, sports comedy. Right. Pass uh, me by. Number six, The Omen. Oh, I love The Omen. It may be trash. It may be a copy of Rosemary's Gravy. Goodness me, it's got Gregory Peck, and it's it it shot through very similitudes. I love it. That's great. And, and Richard here, Donner directing. It. Yeah, good old Richard Was this, this was before Superman, I guess? Yeah. Not long before, though. But, yeah. Well, okay. Uh, number five, we already mentioned All the President's Men. Ooh. Screenplay um, by William Goldman. Oh, I'd like to watch that again, though. Uh, <laughs> probably not on this book. Yeah, maybe. Well, uh, maybe. No, number four, Silver Streak, body comedy thriller film about a murder in Los Angeles to Chicago train journey. Is that Richard Pryor and Gene Wilde? It is. Goodness me, I've seen that. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's one of those films. It's, I have fond memories of it, and I don't want to watch it again in case it, they are destroyed. Number three, and I think its position here tells you really what you need to know about uh, Dino De Laurentiis, because this is his remake of King Kong, which oh, goodness. everybody said was absolutely terrible. Yeah, but still brought in thirty-seven million bucks. So yeah, it is. That's a. Is that the one with Jeff Bridges? Uh, yeah. Oh, that is a that's a stinker, man. <laughs> uh, number two, A Star Is Born, the Barbara Streisand version. Well, not familiar with that, uh, that one. This is... Uh, how many times have they made this? I think it's been three films and a musical. Something like that. And basically Maybe. every couple of generations they make a new version with the same story. The most recent one was with Lady Gaga and Brad Cooper. Oh, that's just about to come out, isn't it? Or has come out? I think it has oh, come no, out. Oh, right, okay. It tell, well, tells you how much attention I'm paying. <laughs> Feels like I should watch it now if it's been made too much. Uh, but anyway, this, this is a 76 version of that. Uh, and number one, Rocky. Rocky. I will uh, restrain, restrain from going, Adrian! Oh no, I didn't, sorry. Um, uh, bring I, in f- I, 56 million on the box office gross. Well, one could argue Rocky. In fact, we debated whether we should watch Rocky or Taxi mm. Driver, which is the other film. We decided, well, I wasn't in a place where I fancied watching Taxi Driver again, honestly. <laughs> um, Rocky. I, uh, Rocky is one of those films, much like The Wizard of Oz, that I feel that I've seen, but I haven't actually seen it. So I probably mm. should. Are other things that happened in, in this year, uh, they started filming on Star Wars and George Lucas did something incredibly stupid. He turned down his half million dollar directing fee in exchange for complete ownership of the merchandising and sequel rights. I mean. What an idiot. Yeah. One of the all time idiotic decisions. <laughs> uh, the last John Wayne film came out, The Shootist. Oh, I haven't seen that. I've heard it's very good, actually. 
Yeah, well, he he was never the same after he played Genghis Khan because of the the fallout. But uh, yes, the fallout. Yeah, um, Genghis Khan. Yes, Wait, John, what? John Wayne played Genghis Khan. What? In The Conqueror. Wow. Uh, he played it very much in, in the way that uh, you would expect John Wayne to play Genghis Khan. Get off uh, your yak and drink your milk. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> come on. Goodness me. Okay. Well, uh, I would... But uh, that, that was in 56, and... It was filmed um, in various places in Utah, uh, which had caught fallout from nuclear testing. Oh, you don't mean critical fallout? You mean literal, literal nuclear yes. fallout? Uh, a surprise! Yeah, ninety-one of the two hundred and twenty cast and crew developed cancer. Forty-six of them died of it. Uh, Which is, even in the uh, smoking rates of the day, that's a lot more cancers than you would expect. Even in a, I, I grant you it's a small sample. You can't prove anything. Radiation is not a good carcinogen. Don't get me started on that, but Chernobyl... No, but inhaled fallout, particularly, is quite good because you get those radioactive particles lodging in your lungs and staying there. If well you actually today. inhale alpha particles, that's not good for you. I'll well, alpha sources is the point, rather right, than particles. Okay. Yeah, All right, we, yes, we, we, should, on... we should probably not go go into our professional backgrounds here. <laughs> yes, let's, uh, okay, yes, fair point. In any um, case, did um, did yeah. he die of um, asbestosis or something along those lines? Or uh, the equivalent of, anyway. Let's not, uh, yeah, sorry, we'll, um, oh. All right, fair point. Interesting. Well, I, I'm, I'm struck with the image of him as Genghis Khan, I must say. And now, whenever mm-hmm. people talk about the fallout of a film, I'm going to think of a very different, <laughs> think of a very different thing. <laughs> wow. Thank you, Roger. Uh, that was an interesting uh, tidbit for sure. <laughs> um, have we anything else to say for this episode, this uh, network-based episode of Ribbon of Memes? Um, I would say uh, pretty much, yeah, it worked. We're done. Well, then it only remains for me to say that I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Oh, we should work out what we're going to watch next then. <laughs> and, but but we'll, we'll, we'll come back and talk to you probably next week. Cheery bye. 